Welcome to the Seafood Matters Podcast. I am your host, Jim Cowie. In each episode, we'll dive into the world of seafood, and by chatting with fishermen, fishery scientists and seafood chefs, we'll highlight the importance of seafood in our daily lives, economy and environment. Whether you catch your own seafood, love cooking it, or want to learn more about where your fish comes from, you'll find it all here on the Seafood Matters Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Michael Kaiser, a marine conservation and sustainable fishery scientist from Scotland's Heriot Watt University. In this episode, we'll discuss Dr. Kaiser's research focusing on how fishermen interact with the sea and the technologies being used to create a better future for our oceans. Stick around to learn more about the dynamics and complexities of marine conservation and the need for innovative solutions in this important field. This is Seafood Matters. So I suppose I first got interested in the marine environment when I was very young, about the age of seven or eight, um, around about the time when Jacques Cousteau was putting out his uh, films on the marine environment. And that um, got me really excited um, to see this very alien world. And then eventually... um, uh, went to university and studied marine biology at uh, the University of Liverpool. And in those days, you spent your final year in the Isle of Man. So literally, you're living right next to the sea for the final year of your university um, studies, which was really very inspiring. But I decided at that particular point that I really wanted to go into research. So I started uh, a research degree, uh, actually looking at the behavioural biology of crabs and fish, um, which is actually quite a long distance away from doing anything to do with seafood or or, uh, fisheries. And you might ask what relevance that actually has. But um, when I started eventually working for CFAS, which is the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science, um, and which was my first job, um, it turned out that actually my behavioural background was really important in trying to understand how fishermen um, decide to make choices about where to fish and uh, how management measures might impact on fishermen's behaviour. So in some strange way, over many years, I sort of brought back in my my sort of early years of study. Um, and that's really, I suppose, what got me very much more interested in Working with the fishing industry, um, at the end of the day, the, the people who understand most about the sea are the people who spend almost, you know, 200 days of their, their year actually out on the water. And um, what I really learned very quickly after I started working at CFAS was that if you didn't take the time to listen to fishermen and think carefully about what they said, you were missing such a large part of the picture. And although the observations that fishermen come up with are not the way I would interpret them as a scientist. You can see what they're trying to say and how they interpret what they see. And that just opens up a whole level, new level of understanding to you. What I'd like to do with that answer is I'd like to go back into a point you made at the start where you talked about your time in the Isle of Man. 
in the Isle of Man, you were involved in a scheme called the Territorial Rights of Use, yeah? And essentially, that's given fishermen ownership of an area. Can you explain what happened there in the Isle of Man? And I'm sure what will come from that is a series of questions from my father. But what exactly does the territorial use of rights mean? And how were fishermen involved? Sure. Well, that, that wasn't during the um, time when I was a student. I was very young. Don't forget, I was only 21 at the time, completely green behind the ears. Um, but it was many years later when I was working at Bangor University and we were providing science and advice to the Isle of Man government and working very closely with, with the industry. So the Isle of Man is quite unique insofar as the, the fleet is fairly small. There are about 29 scallop fishermen, which is really useful because you, you can get to know all the individuals who are operating in the fishery and you can establish good working relationships with them. Now, what actually happened was that in part of the Isle of Man's territorial sea, um, one of the key scallop beds in Ramsey Bay was completely fished out. And the fishermen went to the government and said, we need to close this area because there is no point continuing to fish there. It's just damaging the environment. And so they, they themselves actually requested the government close the area. So the government actually took the opportunity at that point in time to completely rethink how the area might be managed. And because the area fell entirely within the territorial jurisdiction of the Isle of Man government, they were able to create legislation in a way that they thought was progressive and forward thinking. And the head of fisheries policy, uh, Andy Reid, who happens to be the editor of Fishing News, was the person who had the vision, basically based on looking at other management systems around the world. And what it involved was it involved the Isle of Man government effectively giving the fishermen a lease of the rights to fish for the resources on the seabed, in this case, scallops. So the fishermen were given the rights, the ownership, if you like, of the resources, but that ownership and responsibility came with a, a lot of uh, responsibility. So there were conditions attached to the licenses the fishermen were given. They had to be part of the science. They had to take part in the surveys. They had to be part of the management and the, you know, the quota setting process. But it was left to them to decide how they were actually going to catch those scallops. And what was really interesting was how in different years of the fishery, the producer organisation together with the fishermen decided on different ways to go and get the scallops. So in the first year, what they did was they actually chartered um, two of their members to go out and take the catch, which economically was a very profitable thing to do. But in subsequent years, they wanted more members to actually go and participate in the fishery because it was socially important for fishermen to see with their own eyes what you know how the system was working, whether it was really being successful. What they've ended up with, though, is a system which is highly sustainable, reduces environmental, you know, negative environmental impacts, um, reduces the amount of fuel they use, and maximizes the profitability. So it, it really sort of is a great example of uh, you know how we could do things elsewhere around the UK. But this was a scallop fishery, was it, of the Isle of Man? Correct, yes, that's right. Okay, so what was the result on the procreation numbers of scallops once that scallop fishery was closed? Oh, there's a, a lot of complexity in that uh, particular question. So the, um, I mean, scallop dredging is in, undoubtedly has, um, you know, a negative direct effect on the seabed compared to other forms of trawling. Uh, there's no two ways about it, but you have to, 
moderate that in the context of where the actual fishing occurs. So in some areas of the seabed, the animals are very resilient and they can withstand um, quite a lot of disturbance from fishing. But in other areas, and we all know the type of areas that we're talking about, so where you have long-lived species living on the seabed, then um, the, there's, you know, the animals there are less resilient to that fishing. And if you do fish, then it may take many decades for those animals to recover. So that, there's no doubt about that. One of the key things about that Isle of Man fishery is because it was so efficient, it actually reduced the amount of area that the fishermen had to fish to get their quota. So that's a really positive outcome. Um, at the end of the day, the less time we spend messing about in the marine environment, the less impact we're going to have on it. The other, the other thing to say about the Isle of Man um, was that as part of the scallop fishery management measures, they also introduced some closed areas that were not conservation zones. They were closed areas specifically designed to enhance scallop broodstock. And what we do know from some of our other work, as you, as you rightly identified, is that where you do have a closed area and you allow the scallops to grow undisturbed by direct physical contact with fishing gear, you end up with bigger reproductive organs. And that's because the animals that you find out on the commercial beds, because they're coming into contact, physical contact with scallop gear, inevitably they'll be damaged. Maybe not to the extent that it will kill them, but if, if the edge of their shell is damaged, they have to repair it. And so that energy and effort they're putting into repairing their shells all the time is taking energy away that they could be putting into reproduction. So we found that scallops in closed areas were... Uh, turning out a quarter more uh, larvae and eggs than scallops out on the commercial grounds. So scallops are one of those scallops are one of those interesting uh, fisheries where closed, whereas fishermen might not normally like the idea of a closed area, it can definitely help to enhance the fishery and make it more sustainable. Michael, I've been really interested in what you've said there and. Ways that I could probably talk about talking the whole podcast about. And firstly, I was really so encouraged and uh, like what you said, just in the simple fact when you're introducing yourself and that how you about listen to fishermen. And I thought that was so important, and I was so pleased to hear it. It was just impressed me, encouraged me. And I felt how confident it made you as a as a in in your role, and um, because obviously I've been over fifty years in the industry, and I've got lots of friends and who are fishermen, and uh, as you'll probably well aware, a lot of them, you know, are very responsible. And that very much, as they say, very much in their interest for the stocks to be sustainable. Now, interesting on the scallop side, uh, is, am I right in saying almost similar in some ways to what you were saying there about the Isle of Man? Are they not, are they, am I right in saying they're doing something almost similar in the channel? In the English Channel, where they pay a levy, the fishermen pay a levy, and their their st stocks and assessments and that are used. 
because on the on the white first side, uh, I, I was talking to a really good friend of mine who's got one of the biggest boats in Scotland just now, and as he as he as he was uh, almost something similar, he says that what they would like to do is maybe do it's it's, it's a successful scheme that's going in Norway where the Norwegian fishermen, they pay a levy. And they, that is used, that their figures are used as stock assessment. And and they, the skipper, particular skipper I, I spoke to, as he was saying, one stock is, a, is monkfish. And they've been trying to aid the science with monkfish logbooks uh, to no avail as their data was... I mean, you're, you're saying how much we should listen to fishermen and the government are saying they, it, they're, they're, its data is not seen as credible. And I've, I just, I think that's almost insulting. Well, it is insulting. And as fishermen say, why are we not wanting it to be sustainable? We've, we've invested millions of pounds of uh, of our money, we in our future we've got, and many of them they've got fathers, sons, and grandsons uh, coming through the industry. So it's, uh, and I, fee- I just wonder if you could tell us if there's um something missing there because, or is there something going on in between? Because you want to speak to fishermen. And fishermen want to speak to you. No, I know. So it, let's let's put it this way: it's a very broad camera canvas, really. Um, so you've got some really excellent examples around the UK of where fishermen are really deeply embedded in the science. So if you think about the um, pelagic fisheries we have that are mostly centred around Shetland, for example, um, they're very sophisticated businesses. They also understand the importance of science. They have their own professional scientist who used to work for the government agency who actively goes to stock assessment working groups and feeds their data in, into that science. The um, But but that, that fleet is, is a little bit simpler insofar as they're all using the same type of fishing gear. They all have similar types of boats um, and they, they even agree where they're going to go and take their samples from. So that's a le- that's quite a, a level of high level of sophistication, if if you see what I mean. Then you've got smaller examples at the other end. For example, the Cornish sardine fishery, um, which has a, a Marine Stewardship Council certification, and the fishermen were really worried that they were going to lose their sustainability c- certificate because of lack of scientific information. So the um, CFAS, the government science provider, didn't <clears throat> have resources at the time to to put into uh, collecting science so the fishermen actually put themselves forward to be the mechanism to collect that data they said okay what do we need to collect how do we need to collect it where do we need to collect it got fully on board but of course there was a strong incentive for them to do so with the other fisheries um uh, i agree I, I think the relationship has been one of frustration largely for the fishing industry because they're saying we're going out there we'll collect data but actually, there needs to be an understanding about um, what the requirements are for data to be able to use by science. Now, my big hope is that with the advent of technology, that it will make that 
data collection a lot easier. So I'm always very conscious. At the moment, we're doing um, several projects with the fishing industry. We're doing a big piece of work with the whelk industry, for example. It's very, very difficult for me to expect a fisherman to start writing down the numbers of whelks they've caught, the size of whelks they've caught, because the speed at which they operate is so fast. It, you know, They haven't got time to do that. So we need to come up with other mechanisms by which we do that. And that's, you know, through the use of cameras, not to spy on the fishermen, but to record the catch. And then, of course, using computer technology with artificial intelligence now, you can uh, teach computers to count the number of whelks or fish or whatever, um, identify them even, and also measure them. Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're moving in that direction, more and more people going in that direction. At the end of the day, you're dead right. If you want people to have faith in scientific information, if those, if the individuals who are affected by that science advice are involved in collection of the data, they are going to believe it. So um, it's about putting in place the mechanisms with the appropriate standards to collect that information. But the problem is that people have talked about this for decades and they've sort of promised much but not delivered. And I'm saying that's, you know, probably on the science side of things, probably lots of fisheries ministers saying, yeah, we're very keen for fishermen to participate in the science. But, okay, that's a big statement, but you actually have the tool, you have to have the tools to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us, the audience, a bit about the technology you mentioned there? So you've developed a pretty interesting laser scanner to, to, to measure crabs and lobsters in parts of the English fishing fleet. Do you think that technology could be scaled down to the likes of whelk so it's automatically measuring? Because, you know, a fisherman's logbook just isn't enough. You know, you couldn't build a, a medical exam based on nurses' observations or what doctors think or see. So where is this scanning technology for fish that cuts out the fishermen, if you like, but records the data? Um, well, first of all, I can get a lot of information out of fishermen's logbooks. <laughs> so okay. It depends on the question that you're actually asking and, and what it is that you want to know. I want to know where, where, what resolution is this technology for scanning fish? It's good with crabs and lobsters. It can me measure the carapace. But what can it do with, say, fish coming out of a trawl, trawl net? Yeah, so, um, I mean, that particular device, that's uh, not a project we're involved in. That's running out of St. Andrews. Effectively, it's um, the idea for that has actually come from the food processing industry. Um, where basically what you're doing is you're creating a three-dimensional topographic image of the animal. So in other words, you're kind of the computer is reconstructing what the animal looks like. And as you say, with crabs and lobsters, um, the, the, the computer doesn't really struggle with identifying them. If you think lobsters are pretty unique in what they look like and crabs are pretty unique in terms of what they look like. Of course, if you've got a big net full of fish um, in a massive pile all flopping around on top of each other, then it becomes a lot more challenging. So, so that laser scanning technology hasn't been applied to fish. We, what we're relying on mainly with fish is on um, video video based systems. The Norwegians currently have video um, fitted. Uh, they're trying videos fitted into the cod end of trawls, so that they can see. You know, if they're hitting a bad area of bycatch, you know, they can retrieve haul the net, for example. Um, my colleague Paul Fernandez at Harriet Watt University has um, devised this um, uh, technology called the Smart Trawl, which basically is a trawl with a, a 
which has uh, effectively an opening gate just in front of the cod end, and that's going to rely on camera technology. So if you see the wrong type of fish heading towards the cod end, you open the escape door, the fish go out. If you see the right fish that you want to catch, then the door remains shut. Um, and that's all going to be driven by um, video uh, video images, um, uh, sort of interpreted by artificial intelligence. Michael, how does illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, how do you account for that in stock assessment? Um, so basically, um, an, uh, an estimate would be made. So it depends on how big a problem the IUU fishing actually is. So you have to remember that any vessel that's based in Europe at the moment or the UK will be carrying a vessel monitoring system. So, which will be reporting what their activity is. Um, uh, well, a little, at least it'll be reporting the speed of the vessel. From based on the speed of the vessel, we we can um, estimate what the uh, what activity that that vessel is doing. So, we know the difference between steaming patterns of steaming. We know the difference between patterns of fishing. So, so that's quite accurate. But you're right. If you have a vessel that comes uh, to fish within territorial waters and it's uh, not carrying a BMS system, then of course you don't know what exactly it's doing. And if it's not reporting its landings, again, you're not going to know about those landings. The key question is how many vessels relative to our own fleet are actually fishing? So for example, if we've got, let's say we have, um, and I don't know what the number is, but let's say we have a, a hundred whitefish trawlers um, and you've got two vessels fishing uh, illegally, well, relative to the 100 whitefish trawlers, that, that's not very much. There's still only so much fishing those two vessels can do. But for example, if we've got 100 whitefish vessels and it's 50 illegal fishing boats, then that's a big chunk. So there's a, an awful lot more of um, fish mortality that's not accounted for. So it is a problem, but I mean, it, I think the key issue here is what is the scale of the problem? We had the same problem two decades ago, really, with... Um, the reporting of bycatch. I mean, largely speaking, from a stock assessment point of view, the scientists would est make an estimate of what the true measure of bycatch was, partly um, inferred from uh, data they got from observers that they put on a selection of, of vessels. And we know, for example, that the, um, the Scottish Fishermen's Federation actually runs the observer programme now. So that's another example of fishermen being proactive being involved in the science, providing the observers. So at the end of the day, the better quality of the information that's going into stock assessment, the better the output, the more accurate the output will be. The more illegal operators we have working in the fishery, the more difficult it's going to be. There's no two ways about it. But that's not the scientist's fault, if you see what I mean. That's kind of a, it, it's a problem for the industry more broadly. In the same way that in the building trade, we have totally reputable builders, but we also have rogue builders as well. It's no difference. I, I, I totally agree and accept what you're saying, Michael. And the concern is that uh, fishermen, you, you, you're not getting accurate figures in your side, and fishermen are feeling there's, uh, there's a gaping hole in the, and then there's nothing been, been seen to be done about it. And one of the th one of the ideas, a lot of fishermen would say, we would love to see every one of them being stopped. But being uh, the more realistic and responsible ones would say, well, how about regulating the number of 
of of them that can fish because when going by your percentages there it's a it's a big percent it's a real big problem from i would say mainly from about the west of shetland uh, in the at deep edge right down to west uh, the St Kilda and, and and that waters. It's a real big problem and something that's really concerning the Scottish fishermen. So, so one of the um, one of the many problems with the way that we currently manage our fisheries is that we're not. Um, when you um, when you allocate quota for a large area of the sea, so let's say like you know area four A. Um, or whether it's 7A, whatever the, whatever the ICES area is. So the quotas are allocated by these very large sea areas. What that quota doesn't actually come with is any specification about where, the, where within that very large area that quota can be taken, because we all appreciate that fish move around. But, of course, the fish you know, will aggregate in certain areas, which, you know, which is favourable for their feeding or breeding or whatever it might be. So one of the consequences of having this very large scale type of fishery is that you can end up with very intense fisheries in localised areas. Now, if that happens to be off your local coastline, that's bad news for you. Um, but it might be that the fishing activity is not happening anywhere else in that area. So you end up with potentially disproportionate levels of fishing, which um, unequally impact sort of local fisheries that we might have in the UK. So the problem is about the sophistication of the way we actually undertake our management. My own personal view is that Brexit did offer us an opportunity to move much more towards community-based management system where we actually allocate quota to communities. Now, you can't just exclude the foreign vessels, but what you could do is you could uh, create conditions whereby you make it a requirement for them to become active participants in that community-based management. So, you know, if you want to come and you want to fish, You've got to participate in the management. You've got to participate in the science. You have to show up and be responsible and take, you know, your burden of decision making that's, and so on uh, and so forth. That is, that makes perfect sense, and it's 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 like what I always say: the what the, the the schemes that work best is simple, and that's just. How, how, how would a scheme like that work? I mean, how could you possibly petition a Portuguese trawler to start using Scottish government videos on board? I mean, how does that even begin? Well, you just might, well, so the, I mean, the opportunity the Brexit should have handed us is the opportunity to um, basically create license conditions. If you want to fish in our waters, but obviously you would have to apply these license conditions to all fishermen, including our own. So then you're being equal, equitable. Otherwise, you'll get prosecuted because you'll be told you're not treating everybody fairly. So um, but you can create any license conditions that you want effectively. So, you know, if you say, OK, you want a license to fish in this area, you have to carry a camera. You have to report your VMS every 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever that might be. So any of those conditions that you deem to be important for vessels to be able to demonstrate that they are, you know, playing by the rules, uh, conforming to the regulations within an area, then you can stipulate them. I just really personally don't feel we've been ambitious enough. We're being very, very sluggish at sort of grasping this opportunity. Yeah. Well, uh, 
And one of the concerns with a lot of the fishermen uh, with the current uh, data, the way it's recorded, is that, uh, as they say, that healthy stocks are und- can be underfished while stocks that need a bit of perfect pr- protection are overfished. So we do have examples of stocks which are underfished. So uh, you could say that's a good thing because you've got a very healthy stock. It's not going to be in jeopardy of um, collapsing um, and it's going to be able to cope with climatic fluctuations. And, you know, so but actually having an under underexploited stock may not be the best outcome from an economic point of view or a social point of view. There's a, there's a glowing example of that just now. Uh, you could say haddock in the North Sea, there's an overabundance of it, and it's, they're very small. They're not fished hard enough. And you go to the West Coast, and maybe like a monkfish or or a hake for a, two species that are particularly targeted by this uh, IUU vessels. Uh, and so they can be, you know, stocks needing protection are overfished. Well, stocks, healthy stocks can be underfished. And it just seems to be, I don't know whether it's a, the system is wrong or... Yeah, so um, fisheries is complicated. Uh, you have to remember we're, we're managing wild animals. We're trying to manage um, sustainability. So it's not it's fishing is so totally different to farming, where farming is just a control system. You know exactly how many chickens you need to grow. You know in six weeks' time, and then you're going to harvest them. Fishing is completely and utterly different. So. First of all, you know, as we've already talked about, we're struggling with imperfect information. You know, we, we don't know everything. And if you think about how easy it is, um, for example, to do to do a stock assessment of uh, wildebeest, let's say, in the African savannah, which is done every year. And how do they do that? They fly over the land in a hot air balloon and they, they take photographs of the wildebeest. And you can count every last one of them. So, you know, there's, there's very little error there. Um, and so you can estimate, you know, how, how many of them are dying every year and you can come up with an accurate sort of uh, harvest uh, rate. Of course, the problem is we can't actually see where all the fish are. So we never, ever actually, we never, ever could ever count all the fish, for example, in the haddock population. So inevitably, there's always going to be some error in our estimates and uh, we can make it better if we have better quality information. So it's not surprising that from time to time we'll be in a situation where maybe we set the quotas too low. So you can set them too high, but equally you can set them too low as well. Because basically you've got a mean estimate, you'll have the upper limit and the lower limit, and sometimes we go too low and sometimes we go too high because maybe our estimate is, you know, it, it, it's off the mark. Now that, there can be other reasons why that happens. So for example, in Australia, there's such a strong environmental movement in Australia that people are reluctant to eat wild caught fish. So there actually isn't the demand for it. And the sort of the government wants the quotas to, to be set in a very precautionary way. In the UK, that's not the case. We, we let the science sort of indicate what the uh, appropriate level of harvesting should be. And that should be, you know, no more than maximum sustainable yield. So, um, 
Now, obviously, if you set the quota below maximum sustainable yield, you're giving the population a bit of breathing space, so it should grow much bigger. But there can be situations where you actually set the maximum, the sorry, the quota higher than maximum sustainable yield, and that might be because actually the biomass of fish, the amount of fish, is so large that actually that population can absorb a little bit of overfishing. And it may be desirable because if you didn't do that, you might put lots of fishermen out of business. So you're then going to create social and economic hardship as well. So it's this kind of balance about trying to judge, you know, what the, bio what, what the biologically right thing to do is. But you've got to take account of people's livelihoods as well. So you don't want to be sort of wiping out entire local communities. But you brought in, you know, again, the, this idea of uh, illegal fishing. Well, of course, that's another layer to, to add on top of that. But as I said, that is taken account of in the stock assessments. What I can tell you is that, um, I mean, about 10, 15 years ago, uh, the majority of our stocks that are assessed around the UK um, were not in a good shape. Nowadays, most of those have gone from red to green. So more, you know, so we're getting the management right. We're getting the level of fishing right year on year. We're doing it. We are doing a better job. But the other thing that most people don't realize, Jim, is there are hundreds of species which are landed in the UK, but we don't have stock assessment for all the species. There's just too many different types of species to do a stock assessment for because it's so time consuming. Um, and the other thing, by the way, just to think of, is think about all the new species that are now coming into our waters for which we can have fisheries like bluefin tuna, anchovy, sardines or Cornish pilchards, um, red mullet now as a fishery. We don't do a stock assessment for red mullet. So, you know, we're going to be up against this uh, really big scientific challenge, you know, for some years to come. Yeah. And uh, going on from that, Michael, I think, I don't know of any official statements about it, but I often, with my 60-plus years' knowledge of the industry, I feel that Scotland must be one of the biggest multi-species fisheries in the world. And we've had ideas, you know, there's been th train of thought in the past, things like a... Uh, when they're, you know, just regulating it with mesh size and letting immature fish escape. And, and uh, but from having a podcast uh, earlier on with uh, one of the earlier podcasts with Jan Christensen, the fishery scientist in Iceland, I found it very interesting because. Uh, one thing he says, well, he says that, he says, if you increase the mesh size, he says, that can have a detrimental effect as well because it it can be introducing a whole new year class into the fishery that all it's going to do is compete with the other fish for the available food. And... Uh, the other thing that we I brought up with them was predator stock, and we always class whiting as a predator stock. So if you increase the mesh size and an immature, but they're different, being different sizes, and whiting are generally a smaller fish than a say a cod or a haddock. If you let a smaller fish, uh, like cod or haddock, 
escape. It's a, and a mature whiting escapes. Uh, the, the mature whiting would eat the, so that's counterproductive. But he said that he did stock assessment and studies in the North Sea. And he says we, the first thing they did was they took the whiting and gutted them. And he says there were not one case was there any whiting that had any other species of fish in his gut. <clears throat> right, you're going into um, very detailed uh, university level lecture <laughs> on uh, fishing across uh, fishing across the uh, the ecosystem. I mean, there's um, yeah, when you think about it, I mean, the the use of a single mesh size as as a regulatory measure is pretty crude, actually. And um, so there are, there are some quite strong biological reasons why, actually, you might want to kill fish uniformly across all body sizes of the fish. So if you think about the distribution of uh, body size of fish within a population, right, you're going to have lots and lots of tiny ones, as you've rightly said, and you're going to have relatively few very large, you know, old fish in the population. So you've got that sort of pyramid structure. The problem is that if you if you let all the small ones go, you end up with a population that is very skewed towards small fish. And that also has problems in terms of um, genetic selectivity. You actually end up selecting for fish that will grow faster, will achieve sexual maturity at an earlier age, but they won't be as good at, at sexual reproduction because they'll produce poorer quality eggs, smaller eggs, and they won't produce as many eggs. So just to throw a curveball at you, here's another even more crazy suggestion. There's, a, there's an interesting uh, fisheries hypothesis out there called the BOFF hypothesis. So that's B-O-F-F-F-F, -F -F -F, which stands for Big Old Fat Female Fecund Fish. There you go. My undergraduates like that one. But the idea there is that you're big, really big body-sized, old very mature female fish will produce proportionate to their size far far more eggs usually larger sized eggs as well and large larger eggs are better quality eggs produce bigger larvae um, <clears throat> than smaller body size fish so you could even argue that what we should be doing is actually having a maximum landing size so for example in Maine, they have a maximum landing size for lobster and, and the reason for that is to protect these big, old, reproductive females and males. In the same way, uh, so you might think, well, how the hell could you do that in a trawl net? Well, of course, you can, because in certain fisheries, like shrimp fisheries, for example, and certainly in the Australian prawn fishery, they put in um, excluder panels, which basically screen out really large things, you know, like skates and sharks. And it could also be, you know, some big, enormous, fat old cod, for example, and scoot them out through an escape uh, panel. So you let them live, but you, all you actually do is you focus your fishing more on the sort of the medium-sized fish, which at the end of the day is more what the marketing market and the processors want. I mean, the processors usually want... The reason that processors like aquaculture-reared fish is they're all the same size. So that's ideally what they would like. So it's a, re it's a really interesting discussion uh, point that you actually raise. The problem is that where there's an awful lot of inertia in fisheries management um, and for somebody to take that decision to use a different approach 
where basically you land everything and you can sell everything um, would take uh, quite a bit of novelty. The other problem, Jim, that you have to, that also you need to think about as well um, is, is there a market for that fish? So this is where I, so not only do I like talking and listening to fishermen, I also talk a lot to and listen to processors. At the end of the day, they'll bring you back to ground with a bump of reality. I'll say, well, that's fine. You can land that fish, but I can't sell it. So I'm not going to buy it. What do I do with it? You know, that is a major problem just now with the smaller sizes of haddock because there's such an abundance of them. With quota assessment, we're broken, we're, we're separated off into different sea areas and west coast of Scotland uh, and, and east coast. Now, the North Sea is defined from something like the Channel, English Channel, up to north of the Shetlands. And I was, and there's a train of thought with a lot of the fishermen that maybe that's too big an area. And if there were Southern North Sea, Mid North Sea, and North North Sea, because the, because the Shetland, for example, in the Northern part of the North Sea, there's an abundance of cod, but there's no quota for it. Now, the quote, no quota would indicate that the science is that there's, the stocks are actually classed as less than they actually are on the grounds. But there's a real problem in the Southern North Sea that there is no fish. Yeah, so the, um, so the, the, the thing to um, understand is that the survey for North Sea cod has been done over many, many decades, and, it, and it's been done right across the North Sea area. So it's been treated in its entirety as a, as, as a whole area. So the, the data on which you're actually basing your assessment is also driven by that long-term time series of data that fishermen have been collecting for many, many years. Not, sorry, not fishermen. The scientists have been collecting for many years, but also taking on board all the landings from that same area. Now, if you start subdividing the area, that then becomes a problem for the stock assessment. So the way that you're viewing the population of cod is you're saying, the population of cod in that entire area has is this size or that size. Um, now, we don't know, as I said to you, it's really important to understand that we're not making an estimate of the exact number of fish that are actually swimming around in the North Sea. Um, we're actually looking at a trend. It's based on data that's been gathered using exactly the same technique and exactly the same nets year on year on year. So we're looking for that trend, whether it's going up or whether it's going down. Um, and, and also relating to that, to, to what fishermen are landing as well. So, um, again, the fact that the quota is allocated uh, on that basis is, is a bit of a historical legacy issue. And so I, I think there's a valid discussion to be had about whether that is appropriate going forward. Do, do we need to change that? Particularly now, I mean, the thing, if you go back 40, 50 years ago, Nobody was thinking about the fact that the fish would change their distribution to the extent that they have, given the warming waters around the UK. Most of the Southern North Sea is not suitable for cod anymore. It's too warm. So, of course, the fish have re relocated into deeper, and as have the haddock, into deeper and colder water because that's what they prefer. They grow better in cooler water. They do not like it warm. 
And of course, what they're doing is they're leaving space in the ecosystem behind them for these other warm water loving fish like sea, you know, like bass and, and mullets, um, which are coming in and then taking up that, that space. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. One of the other, I don't know, if, do, are you involved in the in going out with the survey ships and doing the assessments and that? Because talking to, yet again, I'm talk, talking to fishermen, and there's two there's two examples. Now, is it, I know it's this has gone back over many years, and you can't just go by two conversations, but... If I was to say it, I thought there was, a, and you'll see the likeness and the, the interest. One one of them, a, a conversations with a cousin of mine who is a very successful fisherman. All these days, he's been retired many years now. So I'm going back a lot of years a, when he was a, the marine lab that was going at the time, and they wanted to do some assessment on and get to go out to sea with him on his boat and and do some surveys and he and he said to them there's no point there's no point in going there just now we won't catch any fish oh no we just need to get the figure we just need to do it and and that was a number of years ago and last year, I was told that they were wanting to do some on at Shet in Shetland. They were wanting to do some assessment on herring, and and the spoke to a fisherman about going out with them and doing some uh, catches and getting some survey done on the herring. And he he said the exact same thing. He says. There's no point in going just now. We're not catch herring just now, but no, they want they needed to do it, and they were going. So uh, th- that that makes a that's another thing that just gives a bit of puzzlement to fishermen is wh- what's this? Some of the figures assessed on. Yeah, so I mean, the the big limitation of a scientific survey is that you 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 go out at a particular time of the year. You go to a location, it's one day in the year, and, and you take a sample, right? And that's it. Now, what the scientists try and do is they try and do that as close to the same time of year, same location that they go to every year. Or maybe we introduce a bit of a randomness to it. Um, but typically, you know, they'll, they'll usually do the survey either, say, in the spring or in the autumn, which takes account of uh, species behavior. Now, inevitably, there will be some locations where they go where, you know, at that particular point in time in the year, it might not be that good for the fish. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to sample all possible locations where they might expect to find those fish. Now, I agree with you. Fishermen obviously will know, well, if you go fishing to that spot, it's going to be rubbish. If you go over there, it's going to be good. The problem is if you only ever sample the really good spots, you would get a very skewed perspective of what the population the true population size was as a fisherman absolutely logical you only go where you're going to get high densities of fish but if we only went there we would actually probably end up um uh, you could could actually miss a large part of the population because we take you know 
we might only be sampling small amounts of fish, but when you add them all, you've got to add them all up from you know, what you might regard as poor areas, but they're still contributing to the population. They can still contribute to the next generation. So the you know, the um what what drives the scientists, what drives the fishermen are two totally different objectives. We need to make an accurate popular estimation. As a fisherman, you want to maximize your profitability and you want to catch the most uh, fish. Um, I, I used to have this uh, classic problem when I was um, working for CFAS myself. And um, we were we were do, actually doing surveys of the seabed, but we would use a beam trawl to do that. And I remember on the first trip we did, and the fishing skipper, who was an ex-fisherman, he, uh, he, he, he looked to see what, you know, the previous, the previous fishing uh, skipper had uh, had caught who'd been on the previous shift he just come on watch and he said oh, that's rubbish he said i'll get you a catch um and then yeah lo and behold we had twice the amount of catch that, that we'd had in the previous tow i said what on earth did you do differently he said oh, i just put some more warp out so the gear dug more into the seabed and we ended up with a big pile i said well thanks very much but that's not what i wanted because you've now changed the sampling protocol i can't use that sample then I'd say to the crew, can you shovel that back over the side, please? Because we need to do that again. But of course, he thought he was doing a great job because to him, a big catch was a good result. Whereas actually, as a scientist, what I wanted was every time we took a sample, we wanted to do it in the same way so that we had consistency. So it wasn't about the amount. It was about being consistent. So the really, really different objectives. And I think, you know, that that's that's why I got involved with Fishing Into the Future, which is all about trying to enhance that dialogue between scientists and fishermen, because we, you know, there is this misunderstanding. Um, the thing that, I've, uh, that is really powerful, though, is when you take a scientific survey vessel, and this has been done on a number of occasions. I did this myself in the Isle of Man for scallops. You fish alongside um, a commercial vessel. Actually, in the case of the Isle of Man, we outfished. Uh, the commercial vessels, in fact, you know, sort of uh, mile for mile. So, um, you know, this idea that scientific survey vessels don't, they're not effective at catching fish. Yes, they are. Just we do things which to the fishermen might seem illogical. The key, well, the thing that we're not doing very well is explaining why it is that we do that because of what we're trying to estimate. It's, it's, it's interesting what you're saying there, Michael, and I totally agree that it's the way the two different people are, 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 are seeing things because I, I, I know what you're saying about this, with the scientists to get uh, the accurate and consistency, but, and, and you rightly said, because a fisherman sees it that the way they see it, uh, not trying to distort anything, but as they're, as you said, that they are looking to catch more fish. But they, uh, they, the way they would look at it, and they, if they're fishing an area just now, they will not be fishing that same area in ten years' time. And the and the area they were fishing, uh, they are fishing now. Ten years ago, there would have been nothing there, and they, so there's. So we, we, yeah. No, I, no. I, I mean, I totally, I, I totally take that on board, and that's why the scientific surveys. When you see how many, you know, dots in the sea there are where the the boats go, I mean, there, there are hundreds, and the reason that we do that is to capture exactly what you're talking about, Jim. That kind of spatial 
variation that you get from one year to the next as the fish reposition and relocate themselves. But going back to the original conversation, this is why we need to, um, you know, grasp the technologies that are available to us to actually start using fishing boats as platforms to gather scientific data. One of the other projects that we're involved in at the moment is we're trying to build um, an environmental data sensor that you would basically fit to a fishing net. If you think about it, every time a fisherman puts a fishing net in the water or a creel, we're missing an opportunity to collect really valuable environmental data about, you know, what's the temperature as you go from the surface to the seabed? Um, you know, how is that gear behaving? Um, what's the topography? And, you know, you would also get, you know, how far did that net get towed rather than trying to estimate it from VMS? Then once you've got that sort of information, which, you know, you can literally fit it and forget about it. That's what we really want, you know, battery, batteryless. Uh, environmental sensors, then we can turn fishing boats into data gathering platforms. And then fishermen are really then contributing to a much richer understanding of what's going on. And to me, that is the most appealing thing because the fishermen are at sea every day. We cannot do surveys because you were making the point about the herring. To understand when the herring were going to be in that location you're talking about, as a scientist, you'd be doing monthly or weekly surveys in the same location just to see across the year what the pattern of the fish being there in a certain abundance or not actually was. But you're asking a very different question. And financially, that's an impossible thing to do. Far better to get the industry to do that. I, one of the things we're, for so many of the things we've spoken about today, Michael, it fascinates me and it just, it, I find it quite sad as well because it, it, whatever is wrong in, in the middle, I don't know, but it seems there's a gaping hole where people like yourself and fishermen need to have far more connection, far more connection than they have. Uh, I think that's just an obvious thing from the, and I know there's will on both sides to 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 do to have that. Uh, one of the other points I was just been thinking about as you were speaking there, and in my in my time and my age, I can remember two two things that uh, as far as the fishermen and and uh, where they're going to fish when we're talking there. Two situations that I thought were so similar, and, and I, I can remember it directly myself. After the Cod War, when we were stopped fishing in Iceland, and the Faroe the Faro, uh, government uh, restricted us as, as well, and a lot of the mainly Aberdeen and Fleetwood trawlers, the Helen Grimsby ones were the bigger one, bigger trawlers that fished in Iceland and North Norway and places like that. But the smaller ones, eh, based in mainly Aberdeen and Fleetwood, they fished the Faroes, so they were stopped. And the Faroe Bank was one of the most prolific fishing grounds in the world, renowned. And and when they stopped, the catch rate, and I I know this because I have the good fortune to do a lot of business in the Faroe Islands in my time in the industry, and I've got this from the Faroes themselves, that 
uh, when the Aberdeen trawlers were stopped and the Fleetwood trawlers were stopped in the Faroes, the catch rate in the Faroe Bank absolutely decimated. It was dropped. and, and they were hardly getting any fish there. And uh, the Faroese government were saying, look, we just weren't quick enough in stopping it. And uh, it's seriously affected the stocks. What they discovered afterwards was the traditional fishing in Faroe was longline, and the trolls were much, much lighter than the troll gear that the UK boats were fishing with the big heavy rock hoppers and that. And they discovered that when they were going over the grounds, it was breaking up shells and rocks and it was putting, and it was feed, creating feed and the fish were coming in to feed on it. And that's how they were catching them. And I remember as well, even on our own grounds and Murray Firth, west the North Sea, round the north coast as well, some of the fishing boats going back, even when it was mostly sea netters before the now what is mostly trawlers, the actual fishing boats would be encouraging the scallop dredgers into areas, and they would even give them readings for that areas. And and the scallop boats would be in there fishing, getting a good fishing of scallops. And after they were they left it, the fishing boats would go in and they would be getting lots of cod and haddock and stuff. And a lot of the what it was in the belly of the when they were gutting them was broken shells and scallop shells and things like that. So it's so, so what you what you've described there is um, glad we're not videoing this. <laughs> what you've described there, Jim, is what we call in science a cultivation effect. So, if you think about it, it's a bit like um, you know when you see the farmer ploughing his field, you'll see a big flock of gulls or crows or whatever, um, you know, going in and picking up the worms worms behind. So, you know, you'll get the same thing in uh, in in fishing on the fishing ground. Just just as you say, I mean, I've. I've, I've uh, studied that myself. Um, you get a really big, strong response. So, I mean, I've seen it in the North Sea myself as well, where you'll see the beam trawlers lining up one behind the other. So they'll wait for the first one to go through, but it'll be the third or the fourth beam trawler that comes in that'll actually get the bigger catch because what you'll do is you'll attract the fish into the ground. I, I, I'm not sure, though, whether that explains necessarily why the, the catches went down. That fish stock on the Faroe Bank may well have been heading precipitously down a you know down an unsustainable slope because the fishing was uh, you know too much. But I mean that's that's an interesting point in history that you refer to because what always irritates me is that um, people don't think about history, why we got to where we are, and people forget about the fact that uh, after the war, after the Second World War, we were encouraged to build fishing boats because fish was cheap protein. Uh, you know, at the end of the day. And it was important to have that protein in the UK. The problem is we built so many fishing boats, nobody thought ahead to, you know, the idea, is that the appropriate number? And then, of course, once you've got that fleet, you've then got that legacy, haven't you? What do you do with it? How do you keep it going? Do you have to feed it subsidies? And so we, 
because we didn't understand what we were doing at the time, we kind of created this monster, which has actually left, which hasn't helped the industry going forward into a more sustainable future. You know, and it's only now um, really where we're really back on top of, you know, the industry has gone through an awful lot of pain in terms of decommissioning and so on and so forth to come back down to levels that are more appropriate for the amount of fish that, that's out there. I mean, if you think about it, Jim, why on earth did we have to send our fleet up to Iceland and up to Spitsbergen, you know, and so many lives were lost, you know, because of vessels icing up. Why were we fishing up there? You know, why were we not fishing in our, in our local waters? Well, basically because the fishing wasn't good enough. So that in a way tells its, it, you know, tells its, its own uh, story. But I mean, I'd like to go back to your point about where's this gap in the middle between, you know, um, you know, because we, on the one hand, we can see, how scientists and fishermen have the the same goal, but maybe there's that lack of understanding. That's that's why I think. I mean, at the moment, there's very ambitious plans for these fishery management plans. What that will necessitate is for fishermen to really be part of the process. Now, the problem is that lots of fishermen don't feel confident to have the sort of discussion that you and I are having in this podcast. So that's why I think um, you know, fishing into the future, which is a a charity that was started by uh, King Charles now, um, probably about, gosh, how old are we now? Something like eight years old or so, exists um, to try and sort of um, uh, give fishermen the confidence uh, to feel that, they, that, they, that they're being listened to and that they know what the scientists are talking about. And um, that's why I support it so strongly. And, you know, it's a charity that is 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 basically driven by fishermen. Most of the trustees are fishermen. Um, but it involves, um, and it's great. I, I mean, I love doing it. Every time I go, I learn so much just talking to fishermen at the bar. I can't say it's doing my living any good, but uh, every time I come away a bit richer, intellectually. I'm calling back to what we were talking about with un regulated legal landings. Oceana, they published two years ago that in the North Sea every year there are up to 41% of the catch being illegally caught by foreign fishing vessels. That's not six, that's not 12 or 11, that's for almost 50%. You, 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 Michael, I bet you don't use 50% in your stock evaluations to account for illegal landing. So surely the fishermen have a real problem accepting that anybody has their finger on the pulse to do with quotas and regu- and landings. With an estimated 41% illegal landings, can you understand how fishermen might not trust that the Scottish government and the scientists who feed the information to the Scottish government have a finger on the pulse? Wouldn't you identify these illegal landings as the number one biggest block between science and the fishermen so um i'm all, well as a scientist you'll understand i'm very skeptical about anything i hear i'm usually quite skeptical of anything that i hear from oceana they have an agenda so i haven't seen that i'd want to look to see where they're getting their data from um all i can tell you is that we had a really big problem in the uk with blackfish landings uh, we know that you talk to anybody in the industry, everybody was well aware of blackfish landings. So the industry were themselves the largest part to blame for misreporting of landings of fish. 
We all know about what was going on in the Pelagic fleet. Um, and, you know, I was a Seafish board member at the time when we were sort of uh, raided by Grampian police. That was a great introduction to being on a board day 18. We've been raided by Grampian police. Thank you for that one. So, um, the, uh, I mean, the, the thing that made the biggest difference there, though, was the introduction of buyers and sellers legislation. So I would say in, in the UK now, the, really the only people who are kind of getting away with illegal landings will be relatively small scale fishers who can just do a bit of backdoor sales with a, with a pub. But I mean, of course, the, the, um, the fact that if you get caught now, that's fraud as opposed to a civil offence. It's a prison sentence. You know, pretty, pretty much overnight, reduce that down to a negligible, negligible level in the UK. Now, if there are vessels um, which are not, you know, fishing under European um, jurisdiction coming in, then uh, you've got to question why. So I, so I don't, and I don't know, and I don't need any details about that. If they are fishing illegally, then you have to say, well, why are the authority, you know, one of the key components of sustainable fisheries is enforcement. And actually, fishermen like enforcement because if they see effective enforcement, it means that everybody's playing to a level playing field. Now, if somebody is getting away with illegal fishing, that just completely undermines your faith and confidence in the system. So um, I must admit, I've not followed that. I'm not aware of it. But then the question has to be to the minister, why why are we not effectively sort of, uh, you know, drilling down on this? That is the question being asked. So, for example, Fishing Forward UK and Shetland have a conglomeration of processors and fishing boats. And on their homepage, they declare that the biggest issue they're facing today is the amount of unregulated, by the hundreds a year, tonnages of fish being landed by foreign fishing vessels, completely unmonitored. It's surprising to hear you're not aware of this enormous issue because it is a massive issue. We're not talking about boats landing and selling to pubs at night. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of tons of fish being landed unmonitored, unaccounted for by you. So fishermen are seeing this. No, I'm sorry. I mean, you're hanging responsibility for all fisheries science on the head of one person. So number one, you know, I don't do stock assessment. Who does that? So, yeah, I mean, so, so basically in, in the UK, um, we have the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science, who are responsible for delivering our stock assessment advice for England and Wales. Um, we have a scientist in Wales, Bangor University, providing stock assessments on sort of um, crab and uh, scallops, scallops. In Scotland, it's Marine Scotland Science, of course, that's responsible for feeding in on the stock assessments. And in Northern Ireland, they have their own team of scientists. But, you know, there's only so much science I can deal with. And I'm afraid that one is out of scope for me. So, uh, you know, this is I'm not an expert on that area. Um, and there's, you know... The, <laughs> There's only so much I can do. And what I focus on is more on the, you know, the interaction between fishing and the uh, the marine environment and really thinking more about, you know, alternative management systems. Ashley, let me come in. I know Michael is more than capable of talking for himself and looking after himself. But let me tell you, as far as what you're talking about there, enforcement, the uh, the unrecorded, unmonitored, 
landings of the boats, you're, the foreign boats that you're talking about, is 100% directly on the lap of Marine Scotland's enforcement team, and they are not doing it. And even, Scot- I know I could put you in, you could speak to hundreds of fishermen who even t- say speak to Marine Scotland themselves and say, why do you monitor me and not the person alongside me? That's what I'm asking. So your your answer is Marine Scotland. Well, again, so the answer to that is it comes down to how big a problem is it? So if you have an estimate of how big a problem it is, then you can factor it in. But I totally agree with you. I've had plenty of um, experience in the past of being contacted, rung up, texted, WhatsApped by fishermen saying, I'm sitting outside this protected area. I can see lights in the area. I'm following him on my um, radar. And I know this guy is fishing. Oh, and by the way, the enforcement team have just boarded me and they're looking at my meshes while ignoring this quite clearly illegally fishing boat, uh, which which was, a, in fact, another UK vessel. Uh, so it's ridiculous. You know, we have we have um, in, in some sectors we've got, you know, unfortunately, um, officials who are paid to be enforcement officers who pretty much don't like confrontation and don't, you know, so I'll do my job. I'll board this number of vessels, but, you know, I, I mean, there was one time when my own scientists actually were photographing an illegally fishing boat off the stern of a boat, which eventually that went as evidence to court. But, I mean, how ridiculous. We, You know, again, again we phoned it in. Did the enforcement team come out and get them? No. So, um, you know, and then, you know, in response to that, there would be all sorts of plenty of excuses. Oh, the engine wasn't working. Oh, it was a weekend. We were off duty. You name it. It's as long, you know. So if we're going to have enforcement, well, let's do it properly. Or it's not bothering. Yeah, 100% agree. <laughs> I, th- I think enforcement is the key to you guys tightening up on what your findings are. If you have all the data, if you like, you know, if you have a partial Actually, data. You've got, you've, you've got to remember that enforcement has nothing to do with science and science has nothing to do with enforcement. They are two totally separate things. And, you know, and if, if I was part of the enforcement side of things, you would never talk to me as a fisherman. Why would you? I wouldn't. But the likes of Oceania, so you reckon that these figures have been thrown around 41% no, over No, the point is, actually, I can't comment on their validity because I haven't seen them. I don't know where they've gotten from, so, you know, I, I can make no comment about that. I'll tell you, the most effect, the effective, most effective way to enforce things is when the industry actually enforces, enforces things themselves. The French are really good at this because the French tend to work in a very cooperative way. So they form themselves into these cooperatives. They have really strict rules whereby, you know, if somebody breaks the rules, well, they're prevented from fishing for a day. Break them again, they're prevented from fishing for a week. Break them again, then they're kicked out for a year. Break them again, then they have their license removed. And it's the fishermen which actually impose that themselves. There's nothing better than your fellow, you know, tradesmen, fishermen, you know, actually enforcing the regulations. Is that what happens in Africa? Because they seem to have a really tight fisheries management system. Uh, no idea. I, cu- I couldn't comment in, in Africa. Certainly in other parts of the world like Fiji, where you have these very traditional fishery management systems that have come up. Yeah, I mean, you would be ostracised from your community. You know, you wouldn't be allowed to have access. Pretty much the French are doing it in, in, the, in the same sort of way. But, you know, 
where, where I, I mean, a, I think a great example in the UK is down in the English Channel where um, UK fishermen um, get together with the French and the Belgians and they, you know, they work out how to use different bits of the English Channel so they don't come into conflict with each other. You know, everyone's always saying, oh, fishermen don't get on, they can't agree anything. Well, guess what? Yeah, actually, they can, and they've been doing that for decades. But do you not feel as well, Michael, that, by the way, I totally accept your comment about Oceania, They they have an agenda, but do you not feel that's very similar for all the other NGOs and and organizations that talk about saving the planet and and all that that they have agendas and they raise a lot of their money making machines as i would call them and and they they're it's really unfair how i mean you'll even when i had the the restaurant you would get people come in and then saying oh I can't have this cod because it's not sustainable. <laughs> I says, yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, um, you're right. The, I mean, the fishing industry, I mean, certainly in the UK, is actually quite small. Um, yeah, you've got to uh, probably most fishermen in, in, in the UK, I mean, probably don't realise just how small an in industry it is. I think we've got something like 14, is it 14,000, 4,000 boats in the UK, 5,000 boats, something like that. I don't know. Maybe it might be a bit more, maybe 10,000. Um, I went to a meeting not so many years ago. We had a scientist over from Kerala State in India, one state in India, 30,000 trawlers in one state. So our industry is actually pretty small. And the problem, and the other problem with our industry as well is it's very fragmented. So you've got lots of fishermen who don't like to be part of a PO. You know, they just like to be single operators. But actually... Being divided is not very effective. The more the fish, you know, fishermen could act with one voice, uh, the the more effectively they would actually be heard. Because what you're up against is a, a torrent of negative media. Because it's very easy to throw rocks at the fishing industry, you know. Um, and of course, you know, you've got things like Blue Planet, which is showing people, you know, how wonderful and precious, you know, the marine environment is. So, you. At the end of the day, the industry is facing a very sophisticated, um, uh, very professional, uh, very media savvy machine, um, and you are very much up against it. But the corollary to that is you you can be heroes as well. I mean, look at Jimmy Buchan, you know, two offers of marriage after the series he was featured in. Um, and, you know, you've got the, what is it, the, uh, the world's wildest fishery, you know, the king crab fishery over in Bering Sea, huge viewing figures because, you know, people appreciate what a tough, tough and uh, dangerous existence it is. So fishing is a bit sort of yin and yang, isn't it? You know, on the one hand, people love it. On the other hand, people don't like it. And there's an awful lot of misinformation out there. But the, the industry doesn't help itself when it is divided. Um, and, you know, the greater cohesion it could have, the better it would be, I think. I, I agree with that. And, Michael, I think... Ashley, in our conversation yesterday, I think you nailed it as far as that's concerned. Uh, with why one of the reasons why that's the case is because the fishing industry is an easy target. You can't touch cows, pigs, or chickens. They're an industry that has so much more 
I don't know, financial investment, if you like. But but the, the fishing industry, as you say, it suits fine that they're disparate and broken with lots of different compartments because it's easier to attack a broken army than it is to attack an entire region, isn't it? And I think that comes through. I think as well what a lot of people forget is we talk about the fishing industry. And, Michael, it was maybe your research I read this from, but we forget that 80% of the fishing industry are people in canoes, right, around the world. These are people in dugout boats with maybe two people on board, like at the vast majority. So I think it's really important, as you said, to break it down into areas, maybe not just as as big as we have now, but it's it's being nuanced about the whole thing. Oceana, to talk about the North Sea, 41% overfishing. These are swooping, swooping anecdotal guesses and no, I think the efforts that you've explained and the technologies that are being created, Michael, is I think that that shows hope for the future of an industry that is contracting like it's never contracted before. And I do believe technology, if the fishermen would give over to the technology, the cameras on the boats, the, G, the, the laser filming, it could start to make a big, big difference because there is just a massive gulf, gulf, gulf in in facts, you you are providing what's closest to facts because it's from repeated scientific data sets. But the fishermen are in a world of anecdotal experience with not no access to actual facts. I bet you seventy percent of the fishermen listening to this podcast don't know that you or your job actually exists. They know who Marine Scotland is because they're the identified devil that's not doing their jobs. So. Yeah, if nothing else, you pointed out that the communication between fishermen and scientists needs to come closer. And I think that's really encouraging because the technologies are there. It's just how it can be adapted, I suppose, to monitoring. Quality. Yeah, so the, so the other thing that you need to realise is that the science community is not a uniform, you know, we're not like, we're not all angels, you know, arrayed up in heaven with white wings. There, there are some people that also, you know, I mean, as a scientist, my view is that my duty is to report facts as they are and to interpret those facts in a, in a way that is genuine without any sort of loading on those facts. But there are people that do not conform to those ethics who do actually have agendas, who do have track records of drawing down lots of money from the Oceanas of the world and, and the funders of Oceana, for example. And inevitably, there will be a tendency to look for the result. What's the result we're looking for? Let's now find the evidence to support that result. And that is absolutely poor practice. But unfortunately, you have to realise that that that, that happens. Um, and, and I have to say, just from a personal perspective, that is the one thing that pisses me off more than anything else. So um, the one thing I get angry about is when I see misinformation and distorted and biased reporting and so but i but i would say that the vast majority of us are actually robust we all get angry about this we all see these headline publications like the the one recently that said that the fishing industry was contributing more to uh, you know carbon dioxide emissions than the airline industry in the world it's absolute nonsense full of errors the only thing we could do was you know collectively write a what we call a rebuttal so that's like a, an objection to that paper coming out but guess what what's all the media reporting they're still picking up that paper even though we rubbished it the damage is done so uh you know it takes an awful lot of effort to undo bullshit 
a lie travels around the world twice before the truth has even got its trousers on. Yeah? And you see it with posts on social media. You'll see somebody making the most outrageous claim, and it'll get 3 million views. And then you'll see the rebuttal or the edit saying, we're sorry it was wrong, and it'll get 12,000. That's the world we live in. That's what you essentially are fighting against. It's the most frustrating thing that happens in every sector. Sure. Is the, the, the need, the, the profit generated by the headline compared to the reality faced by the people. I know. And, and to be quite frank, it's a sad place that we got to. Nevertheless, that doesn't deter me from pursuing the truth. Um, and, and, I intend, and I intend to continue doing that with fishermen. You're, you did stuff on the impact of trawling and scallop dredging on the seabed. For many years, 30 years of my life. I know, well, a lot of scallop dredgers would say, one in particular who I'm per, really good friends with, as he says that, well, two things he says, three things I'll tell you he says. One is, well, what's a farmer's field like? You mentioned earlier, what's a farmer's field like if he doesn't plough it? And he reckons that his his wife does more damage to the wildlife when she takes a strimmer around the garden than when he's when he's scallop dredging. And the other thing he says that he'll go around the completely around the British Isles over the course of a year, and he's been doing that for over forty years now. So, what's not sustainable about that? Well, uh, yeah, so bottom trawling is very controversial. There are lots of people who would like to ban it at the moment. Um, I'm, I don't fall into that camp. Um, I think the thing that people lose sight of is that bottom trawling, including scallop dredging as well, contributes um, a quarter of all seafood landed in the world at the moment. So if you turn that off overnight, that you would be losing 20 million tonnes of food production uh, of very valuable and very healthy protein uh, that people consume. So <clears throat> the idea that you could just stop doing that is uh, is is nonsense. I mean, so my first job um, after coming out of university was to um, understand better exactly what beam trawling does to the seabed, um, and that sort of then branched out into uh, scallop dredging. And of course, any any you've got to start with the premise that any fishing activity. The fishing, fish, what is fishing? Fishing is a food production activity. What is farming? Farming is a food production activity, right? Inevitably, both, both types of uh, food production, all types of food production are going to have some impact on the natural environment. So if you don't accept that, you're a fool. It's inevitable. So, um, so that's the first premise that you need to think about. The second question is, you know, to what extent is it sustainable or not? And, and this, this comes down to the environmental context of where the fishing actually occurs. So, you know, fishing is not uniformly distributed across the sea. It, fishermen go back to the same locations year in, year out. Some years they do, some years they don't. But they don't just fish, you know, willy-nilly at random around the sea. They're, they have particular uh, features that they're following, and obviously they know where they, you know, catch fish successfully year on year. Of course, what that does is it tends to aggregate fishing in a relatively a smallish, smaller proportion of the seabed. So if fishermen were fishing everywhere, it would actually be a disaster, but they don't. So they fish in certain locations. So the, the perspective I have on that is that's like thinking about those areas as being marine food production areas. 
So we should think about them as food production seascapes. Yes, they will be modified. Where it's not sustainable is when you've got things that are living on the seabed that, you know, take 20 or 30 years to recover or they're very, very slow growing or they're very rare. And obviously that's when we that's when we use conservation zones to protect them. Don't go fishing there. It's a no-brainer. But, you know, when we've got um, – I always, I always show when – I whenever I give a talk, I always show a picture of um, the seafront at Aberystwyth on the coast of Wales. When we had a huge storm come in, and most of the seabed was actually in the front living rooms of all the people who had houses along the prom. Or another time, somebody sent me a huge photo, a, a photograph of a huge wreck of uh, shellfish, crabs, you name it, all thrown up by a storm. So, you know, you have these areas where natural disturbance will have a really big effect. Now, it's not that fishing has no impact, but the point is that the animals that live in areas that, are, you know, are used to getting lots of natural disturbance will be better able to cope with additional, you know, disruption from fishing activity. So they're the areas that, you know, it, it's if you're going to focus your fishing activity somewhere, focus it there. We have the information from doing all that work now. We can say which areas of the sea are vulnerable, which areas are resilient to, to fishing. So we can inform management about that. So that's, that's a good place to be in. The other side of it is, well, can we change the way we fish? So can we, instead of using otter doors, for example, can we use semi-pelagic doors? So they still keep the net open, but they're not plowing their way through the seabed. That's one way you can reduce uh, disturbance. The other project that we're involved in at the moment is trying to lift swallow dredges off the bottom by fitting them with skids so that the belly bag isn't scraping along the seabed. And actually what that also does is it reduces fuel consumption as well because you're reducing the friction and abrasion. So that's a that's a win-win for the environment, the fishermen and the atmosphere as well. That's a, an interesting point. But one of the things that uh, the fishermen feel Certainly, the scallop bridgers and the and the bottom trawlers feel is, uh, and I'm not, this is not directed at you, uh, but it's it's certainly taken it to my mind, is that the it's mostly the NGOs and they they'll have things online and and places about the damage this damage that it does to the seabed. Now, I'm not contradicting what you said there. But what I do know is the biggest bone of contention with the fishermen is all they hear about the damage to the seabed, and yet there's millions of tons of aggregate dredged for the building industry, millions of tons in a year, and, and nobody ever mentions anything about that. Sure thing, but Jim, at the end of the day, that's a very, very small area of the seabed that they're impacting. I know it, I know it's a very intense, of course it's very intense, they're actually hoovering up the seabed, but it's concentrated in a tiny area compared to the actual area that we're actually fishing. But I mean, yeah, it's very easy to show emotive pictures, you know, after a beam trawl's gone through. Well, guess what? It doesn't look very pretty after a combine harvester's gone through a nice field of wheat, and uh, nobody's running into the field afterwards showing you all the little chopped up bodies of field mice and dead crickets and God knows what else. So what I think is always really interesting is how the general public somehow see the marine environment in a totally different way 
to the way they perceive the land environment. You don't see people lining up in protest as a combine harvesters about to set to and harvest the corn. Because they can't see it. Well, no, they just know that they're, they're used to it. They're, they're used to the combine harvester. We've been born, you know, we can see, well, yes, you're right, sorry. They can't see it. You're t- you, you both of you are talking about scallop dredging. But, like, to my understanding, scallop dredging on a sandy bottom is doing no damage or much less damage than scallop dredging on coral because coral can be up to like almost a thousand years old. They are, they're taking a thousand years to recover. Isn't there a big definition between where scallop dredging is being conducted and not? Doesn't that make all the difference? Well, that was exactly the point that I was making that, you know, the, the effect of that scallop dredging is entirely dependent on the type of you know, seabed environment in which it occurs. So you're right, sandy seabed, minimal impact, very quick recoverability. Um, Lime bays, classic example, it's bedrock, it's covered in sea fans. They're not a thousand years old, but it will take between 15 and 20 years to to recover from that effect. Now, so it's a no-brainer, really, but it's still actually a relatively small area. So, um, but but to be quite frank with you, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't believe that fishermen go into an area with the intent to kill sea fans. They go into an area with the intent to catch scallops. So, again, part of the problem here is we don't have perfect information. In the same way, the fishing industry don't have perfect information. When you, when you think that most people are, are working with an echo sounder, which just shows you what, what the seabed topography looks like in a tiny beam under the hull of your vessel, you can't, it's not telling you what is either side where your dredges and your beam trawls are. Um, so, so our actual knowledge of what is actually there is still so limited. And actually what we found in the Isle of Man, when you furnished fishermen with much more information about where scallops were distributed, they would be much more efficient in the way they went about fishing and they created much less environmental damage. Yeah, to the methods of fishing, one of the other bones, going back to the IUU and this foreign boats, one of the biggest bones, another bone of contention with the Scottish fishermen is the fact that it's all long line and gill netting. And the only people, and I I can say this by myself, and I've been in, over the years, been in many, like the North ports where a lot of the that boats land, be it um, Alapool, Lochinver, Scrabster, and only person, only people I've almost ever seen, apart from an odd occasion, taking the disused gillnet and long line ashore are Scottish boats, and I've picked it up in their trawl. That foreign boats just dump it and don't take it in. And the real worry for the Scottish fishermen is, as you you know, the the nets and the lines, they're continuing the ghost fishing or rogue fishing, whatever you call it, and they're continue. It's monofilament gear that never rots, so it's continuing to fish and 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 kill fish, and I'm taking it a stage further. I remember I I with the Marine Conservation Society, I they asked me to come on board and give my thoughts on things which I agreed to do because I felt if I could put a message 
across from my knowledge. And uh, for years I was at them about it, and they had, um, I haven't just seen it lately, but whether it's changed, but they have this traffic light system, red, green, amber, and green. Red, a species that is red, it's unsustainable, don't catch it, don't touch it. Amber, the stalks are reasonable, don't, but don't overdo it. Green, the stalks are good, eat as much as you want. And they had monkfish. They had monkfish is okay in moderation if it is mature and gillnet caught. And I told them, I said to them for years, I says it's the most damaging form of fishing. Eh, that's just that just shouldn't be. Nothing I said made any difference to them, and they never ever changed that. And I, I just, you know. I think, well, I mean, at the end of the day, though, Jim, it depends on the provenance, um, so where, where that monkfish has come from. So, um, I mean, I would have thought any UK vessel using those techniques would be fishing in a responsible way. Uh, I know the, I think I'm aware of the in, the issue that you're talking about. We're actually talking about IUU vessels fishing outside the 200-mile territorial EEZ, where, of course, they're in international waters and they're fishing on the... Uh, on the uh, continental slope that goes down to, to, so they're fishing in deep water, sort of, what was that, five, four to 600 metres deep or something like that. And those vessel, vessels, because they are fishing illegally, they're going to see with more netting than they could ever bring back because they wouldn't have any fish and they're not interested in bringing it back. So that, that's been highlighted uh, in a number of reports and, and that is horrendous. The problem is if it's occurring in international waters, there's very, very little we can do about it because it's outside our jurisdiction. If it's happening inside the UK, then that's disgraceful. And again, it's an enforcement issue. But then, you know, you, you, you could say that one way of tightening this up would be, I mean, we have very little insight about ghost fishing gear. So, and undoubtedly the, you know, one of the worst uh, culprits for that will be deep water gill nets, right? But then why are we, you know, why are we not introducing some sort of sensible system whereby you have to declare how many nets you've bought and then return them? If they're useless, return them. If you lose them, say you lose them. But then there should be some conditions about, you know, how many nets it's acceptable to lose in any one year. But I mean, the, the, the IUU vessels, they're not interested in any of that. And because they're breaking the law anyway and operating illegally, they don't give a damn. So, so it is horrendous. Uh, I don't have a solution for you, um, but again, I think it comes. But you know, without within our waters, it, it would be good to see a bit more ambition, you know, around some of these things. These things are not difficult to do. For example, the only thing I've repeatedly suggested is you need to bring the net manufacturers factories into this. Why do we not barcode net ropes, headline and foot lines? You have a barcode. You bought it. You return it. Or or G GPS tags. Every twelfth mesh panel, they cost nothing. That you're right. It's a lack of ambition. There is there is regulation in place because the floats and the dams that the 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 nets they're they're, they're meant to have the boat's name on them. 
Uh, no, no, no. So that, they're the markers, and of course they're the expensive bit, Jim. So of course they bring those back. But uh, it's about the accountability of the gear that you bought. The other thing is, if you had account the accountability for the amount of gear that was bought, you would get some indication of how much equipment is actually out in the sea ghost fishing. And we have absolutely no understanding of that at the moment whatsoever. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you an example. I'm doing a project at the moment uh, in Vietnam. Uh, we're working extensively with fishing communities. We did five, over 500 questionnaires with, with fishing communities. Every single time they go fishing, they have plastic waste in, in their fishing equipment. One of the biggest forms of fishing waste, of course, is fishing gear. Um, we were getting stories uh, coming back in our questionnaire surveys where they are losing huge amounts of time with gear wrapped around propellers. If they can't fix it at sea, they're being towed back in. But also horrific stories of crew being sort of told to go over the side, untangle the propeller, and then because the skipper's left it in neutral, they get chopped up. So there's a real human cost to all of this, you know, effectively what is irresponsible activity. But we can't say, you know, we have to be very careful. That's a small minority of fishing businesses, many of which are illegal, that are doing this sort of thing. Do you have a way to estimate for ghost fishing in your quota assessments or stock assessments? The, the, the only example I know where they make any attempt whatsoever to try and understand that is in Canada. Where they actually, you know, they, I mean, they've worked with the, I mean, the industry themselves knew it was an issue. This was with uh, uh, lobster creels and sort of snow crab creels with these big stainless steel structures. So they're not going to rot down. And of course, they're quite valuable. But they actually, so they go out every year and they have a voluntary sort of grappling program where they go out and try and drag up as many. So they would actually have some insight into what was being lost. Um, but, you know, the point is there, it's the industry themselves recognized and were quite clear about the problem. They knew they had a problem. They owned it, if you like, and then, you know, work with the scientists to try and, you know, do something about it. If tomorrow the Scottish fishing industry and the Scottish government decided to do just as we said, whereby before a boat leaves the port, a monitoring officer identifies how many nets are on board the boat when it leaves, and they come back, how many nets are on board the boat when it comes back at its simplest level. Can we insist that Spanish, French and Portuguese boats confirm to that, or can't we? How would that work now Brexit's occurred? Well, I'm not an expert on, on this, because we're talking about the legality of it, but I would have thought that was the whole point of Brexit. Weren't we getting back control? So doesn't that mean if we're permitting people to fish, uh, if we're allowing people to fish in our, in our waters, that they have to conform to any rules and regulations that we um, require? That's that's really the way it should be going. It seems like a very simple solution. And the question must come is who's responsible for that in Scotland that doesn't just switch that on tomorrow? Because that's a very simple solution. Yeah, but I'm not sure whether... Well, so fish, fishing, of course, is a reserved matter. Whether it, extend, whether it actually extends to legislative powers in relation to international fleets, I, I don't know. So you would need to invite another expert onto your podcast who could talk about, um, you know, what is and isn't possible under law. Or somebody like um, Bryce, Bryce Stewart at the University of York, who's, who's written quite extensively on uh, these sort of issues. I, I would say 
100% agree with what Michael said, and all I would add to that is when he mentioned Brexit, the Scottish fishermen feel we got the we lost the best of Brexit and were left with the worst parts of it. Um, yep, fishing industry got done over again. Well, I'm not going to make any political comment. Who do you vote for, Michael? No. <laughs> And uh, I mean, I, I, I thought the whole thing was, I, I thought it was, well, I found the whole thing very depressing personally. I know there are lots of fishermen that voted for Brexit. There are lots of farmers that voted for Brexit. Lots of farmers now are regretting voting for Brexit. Because one thing that people, I mean, and I've said this many times before, it's all very well having lots of fish to catch. You've got to be able to sell them. And, you know, some of the pain that we saw, particularly with the live uh, products going out from Scotland to Spain, you know, suddenly then we had a bot look at the bottleneck. You know, I mean, we've created so many problems, so many barriers to flow of trade. People have lost kind of sight of the fact that seafood is the world's most complex and biggest global market, one of, you know, the most sophisticated global markets. Seafood is traded everywhere. When you think about, you know, where our products go from the UK, it's phenomenal. And then what we've done overnight is we've introduced a whole host of barriers. Um, and then you have something political like the Russian war. Suddenly you can't sell your mackerel to Russia, uh, for example, or, you know, Ukraine's in the middle of a war. So these are real big shocks to the system. I think, um, I, I mean, I fully understand why, why fishermen were frustrated uh, with Europe. But to be what a lot of fishermen don't realise was that Europe never dictated to the, Europe, to the UK government how quota was allocated. It was the UK government that decided how it was going to do the system it was going to put in place to allocate quota. So a lot of inshore fishermen's frustration with what they perceived to be a European imposition was the fact that they weren't being given quota. So that was a decision taken by DEFRA. I mean, I remember when that controversy was going on, it was all over fishing news. Nobody was listening. Nobody was listening. So, yeah, it, it's it, uh, it. Anyway, anyway, we are where we are. We now need to make the best of it. We have some opportunities to, to move forward. But we, you know, again, where we've got the opportunities, let's be ambitious. And I still think that things are moving along at far too slow a pace. But I think the industry is hungry for change. The scientific community is ready to go just be good to see government actually get on board and really get their finger out. Taking it towards the end of the conversation, I'd like to ask you, I believe you're a sea angler, am I right? Uh, in the past, I have. I definitely was an avid angler. I used to lie in bed at night dreaming about it. That's how sad a person I was. I was a sea angler for 20 years, stopped 10 years ago, so I'm in exactly the same boat. But I'd like to ask you, where's your marks? Are you a Devon guy or where do you fish? Oh, uh, good, good point. Um, well, since I've spent most of my time around Wales, North Wales coast is very good for sea bass. So uh, I do like wasting a considerable amount of time trying to catch bass, which are very good at eluding me. Um, but I, I got very friendly with a guy called Mike Ladle, who was the first really strong advocate of using artificial plugs, lures, to fish for sea bass. So, you know, where you'd go down in a really rocky cove so you just skim these plugs over the the top box rather than using peeler crabs i don't know i mean it, it's just i love going fishing because 
when you're fishing, you, you, you clear your head of all that other rubbish in your life, um, which would be work and work stress, stress related to work and things like that. And it's just, you know, going down to the shore, watching that heron flying along just as the sun's rising and, um, you know, maybe seeing an otter or something like that, you know, coming down to the shore. You can't beat it. I mean, kind of catching the fish is sort of secondary. I mean, it's great if you catch some fish. I love eating fish, of course. Um, I think the biggest bass I ever caught at the time was a complete fluke because I was having a piss further up the shore and my rod was bouncing down towards the sea. So eventually I, I grabbed hold of my rod and guess what? There was a, a nice six-pound bass on the end of it. So I can't even claim any skill, I'm afraid. That's fishing. No, no, I, I, I definitely realised my limitations as an angler. <laughs> if you relied on any catches that I produced, you would assume that the whole place was a desert, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and me as well. There's some. There's two types of people. There's people who love going fishing, and there's people who catch fish. I'm off the yeah, board. I know. I think one of the most uh, funny interviews we ever did with a fisherman. Um, I, I don't want to identify who they are by telling you where it was. Anyway, it was within the UK, and we said to this fisherman, um, "Why do you go fishing every morning at three a.m. even if the tide is coming in and you're pushing the tide?" He said, "Well, I just like to get away from the wife." So. <laughs> An appalling thing to say, but it just goes to show you can never make assumptions of why people do what they do. And when you're working with human humans, it makes life a more interesting, but be an awful lot more complicated as well. Yeah, because fishermen suffer like every industry; they, they suffer confirmation bias. Where somebody who's earning money from an industry has a tendency, following cognitive bias, to to believe only the evidence that supports their side of it. and you know there's a lot of that exists naturally so as you said it's only science that can really deliver the facts all of the anecdotal evidence in the world isn't really going to get us anywhere but fishermen can be key to helping us deliver those more of those facts going forward in the future that's that's certainly the message that's come loud and clear with me uh, tonight today with this conversation because knowing so many fishermen as well as I do and hearing what you're saying Michael it's it's just it's got to happen it's not uh, I think we've just got I think it spurs it on and I think there's going to be a few fishermen proactive in this and when they hear uh, what you're saying I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that there will be some action to get you closer. Michael, thank you very much indeed for your time and for joining us in the episode. I hope we'll have you back on again in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Nothing I like more than talking about the fishing industry, fishermen, and, and discussing it with a bunch of fishermen. And I ask each person now before we close up, if you were taking... If you were, if you just say you had been fishing or on a harbour or that, what would your take-home fish be, and what would you do with it? Ooh, mm. well, that's that's a nice that's a nice choice to have. Um, my take-home fish, what would it be? I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this one too. That's a question for the both of us. So let's see what we come out with oh, here. Okay, my take-home fish. I would probably be a monkfish. I would uh, 
skin it, obviously. Um, some n- nice big sort of uh, fillet or steak of it. Uh, wrap it in some pancetta. Uh, put some herbs in, a bit of lemon juice, a bit of white wine. Bake that off in the oven. Serve it on top of some pre-lentils with nice chorizo, and which are poached in red wine. And that is lovely. Mine is a macro. I would take it home, clean its arse, wrap it in tinfoil and eat it. It's just that simple. The finest fish in the North Sea. Do you know, uh, yeah, I also, yes, that also could have been an answer for me. Uh, one of the most underrated, undervalued fish going and one of the cheapest fish. I'll never forget when I was uh, running a restaurant, the Captain's Galley, and uh, I was at the, this, I was speaking to this guy at his, at his table and he says, uh, one of the, uh, uh, we're talking about fish, obviously. And I said, he says, the best experience he's, the most memorable experience he had as far as eating fish was concerned. They, obviously, this was before he ate at the captain's galley, but he said he was out fishing. They were catching mackerel. He said, they had a bit of a, a small boat. They had tin foil. They wrapped the mackerel in the foil and strapped it to the manifold of the engine and cooked it. Yeah, that would do it. And yep. cooked it. Yeah. And I, I said, well, I'm sorry. There is no chef in this world that will emulate that. This is when you think you're, you're out there in the sea, and a small boat close to the water and catching fish, no stress. There's no chef in the world to match that. No, that's true. Yeah. I mean, the, the sad thing about mackerel, of course, it deteriorates so quickly, doesn't it, after you caught it? You know, it's literally you're on, a, you're on a, like a stopwatch to get to eat it, really. I know it's going to happen after this podcast. Somebody in London is going to put on their menu... Manifold baked mackerel at sea. You watch. <laughs> anyway, nice to meet you, Ashton. Lovely to meet you, Thank Jim. You. Yeah, That's definitely. Fine. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for listening to Seafood Matters Podcast. You can subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. You can join me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook by searching for at Seafood Matters Podcast or get in touch with me through my website www.seafoodmatterspodcast.com